All right, I hope you guys got refreshed. There were some people that said they couldn't hear me. Can everybody, can you hear me now? <laughs> Good. All right, so we talked a little bit about my perspective. We talked a little bit about where I grew up. We talked a little bit about, um, I'm going to move these out of the way so I don't trip on them. Um, this now, based on where I've been, based on the perspective that I got, you guys all, can, can anybody relate to getting faulty perspective based on life experience? How many of you have suffered from that affliction? Okay, I think we all do. I think it's living in a world. I go back to that Bible study with those girls. It was so telling how much the world presses in on us all the time and how important it is for us to live lives that create an environment where we are constantly being directed to where God wants us to be. It's not an easy task, and it requires all of us together too. We're going to be talking about how we do that right now. Trust starts with trust and faith. And I'm going to have, I'm going to do another little exercise, and I need another volunteer. Okay, but I have a caveat to my volunteer. (laughs) Whoever it is has to trust me. Like, really trust me. You guys don't know me very well. (laughs) She'll do it. See, they wimped out. I'm I'm disappointed. (laughs) My heart is hurt. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'll I'll recover. Okay, so this is Hazel. Hi, Hazel. It's nice to meet you. She trusts me. She doesn't know me, but she trusts me. Now, how many of you have seen and done that trust exercise? Okay, well, we're going to do that right now. And I'm going to stand right here, and I'm going to ask you to fall back into my hands. But for right now, I'm just going to hold on to you, okay? So fall back. Okay, now how was that to fall back? Comfortable? You could feel my hands on you, right? Mm -hmm. So was it easy to trust that I wasn't going to let you fall? Absolutely. Okay, she said yes, by the way. (laughs) Now, I'm a little klutzy, but I'm strong. (laughs) So I'm going to ask you to fall back. Yep, go ahead. Okay, how was that? That was okay. How was it? Was it a little harder to trust me when you couldn't feel my hands directly on you? I know you're not going to drop her. You know. <laughs> she knows. I'm not going to drop her. But, but did it take a little bit more faith knowing that my hands weren't directly on you? Was it a little bit different? Yeah. Okay, now do you really trust me? Yes. Really? Okay. You're not? You're not going to fall back? But you said you trust me. I'm going to ask you to fall back, please. Fall back. (laughs) How hard was that? That was a little more difficult. See why I said she had to trust me? Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Hazel. (laughs) You know, I think we go through our faith walk, and there are times where we feel, feel God's arms upon us, and we can do anything. We can do absolutely anything God calls us to do because we feel him with us, and we feel his presence. And then there are times when we don't feel him. But you know what? It just makes sense that he's in it. It just makes sense that he's there. And so a fallback requires a little bit more faith. However... It's, it's a little bit easier because it makes sense that he's going to be there. And then there are those times in our walks where it doesn't make sense that God's in it. Not at all. We don't feel him, and where we see him doesn't look like anywhere that he might be able to catch us. And we have to trust, just like Hazel. You did a good job of trusting. You know, it didn't make sense that I would be able to catch her. She had to trust that I had made provisions. She had to trust that I was not going to let her fall because I told her. And that is much like our walk of faith. There are times that we will experience various levels of feeling God's presence in our lives. And our job is to trust in spite of all of them. 
God's size never changes, ever. Our perspective does, our circumstance does, but whether or not we feel him doesn't make him any different. He is still the creator of the universe. He's still the author and perfecter of our faith. He is still huge, and he still is able, and his promise still stands. He will not let us fall. 1 Samuel 15, 29 says, The glory of Israel, God, will not lie or change his mind. For he is not a man that he should change his mind. God's promises are firm. They are reliable. We can count on him. He's not like us. He doesn't, he's not an Indian giver. He doesn't take back things he's given us. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he says it because he absolutely means it. And he won't leave us behind. This talk, we are going to be talking about our need to put our minds around biblical hope versus the world's hope and how the world defines it. And we're going to be talking about that a lot. And how do we keep a faith that will allow us to fall back when nothing makes sense and rest in the arms of our Savior? I want those of you who brought their Bibles, if you could turn to the story of Ruth. And I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to read through a little bit of Ruth. And we're going to study some of what happens here. And we're going to study a little bit of perspective. Because the story of Ruth has phenomenal information for us in perspective. So I'm going to start with one. Now, it came about in the days when judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech Elimelech means, my God is king. Okay? So, Elimelech, in the name of his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpha and the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malin and Chilion died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they left. They lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband." If I said I have hope, if I should have even a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. I want you to go a little bit down to 19. So they both went until they came, oh yeah, came to Bethlehem. It's right next anyway. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? Father God, I just thank you so much for your word. Lord, I just pray that your words would be spoken today. And Father God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes and ears to hear and see your word. 
and apply it to our lives, Father God, and to our understanding of what you would have us learn today. In your precious name, amen. So let me give you a little background history. Elimelech, which means my God is king, is in Bethlehem, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. Does anybody know why there's a famine in Bethlehem? Why did God cause famine to come upon his people? Does anybody remember? Throw it out there. Disobedience, okay? So Israel's been disobedient. There's a famine in the land, and a man who's grown up in a faithful family, his name means my God is king, decides to take off and go where? Where's, he goes to Moab. Now Moab and, and Israel have tense relationships. They kind of don't have the best relationship. But since Moab has food, instead of calling out to the Lord, binding up and, and gathering up all the people of Israel and saying, let's call out to the Lord, because he promises us if we call out to him, he will heal our land. Instead, he takes off. Now, on the way to Moab, it's just a funny, interesting thing to note that he has to pass by an altar that was made before all of Israel came in to exonerate all the promises, to lift up and to remember, an altar of remembrance for all that God had done to bring them into the promised land. He has to walk right by that to go into Moab. He starts off just going, I'm going to go get some food. And then they just kind of like, oh, there's food here. Let's just hang out here for a while. And then they end up making their home in Moab. Now, the Jewish people, were they supposed to marry people from other... Were they supposed to marry Moabite women? The Moabite people, did they serve other gods? What had God said about that to them? They were idolaters, okay? So, so what has Elimelech done with his family? He and Naomi have left Bethlehem. They have left in famine. They've left in disobedience. They don't submit their hearts to the Lord. They go to Moab, and some bad things happen. Ruth, obviously, they're still loving the Lord. Can you guys ever do this in your Christian walk? I'm walking. I'm doing the best I can do, but I'm sort of walking in disobedience. Any of you ever do that? I mean, it's so easy sometimes as I read the Old Testament to sit and judge Israel for, for how they behaved. But I find in my own life consistently I have the exact same struggles. I don't necessarily want to obey everything God tells me to do. And in fact, again, self-reliance is figuring out my way versus God's way. And I suffer from that affliction all the time. So Elimelech dies. Naomi chooses to remain in Moab. His sons marry Moabite women against God's law. Sons die, and Ruth binds herself to Naomi. Now, something has been taught in that home because Ruth binds herself to God as well. She says, your God is going to be my God. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm going back to your land. I don't want to live in the land with my gods. Naomi had told her, stay here. Go worship your gods now. So said, no, 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 no. I want to go with you, and I will die. It's only death. May God judge me. And separate me. Or, and do whatever he will if, I, if anything but death separates us from each other. That's a binding. That's a covenant that is made between Naomi and Ruth. Naomi returns to Bethlehem. For those of you who are listening, verse 19. What does it say? How does she return to Bethlehem? She says, my name is no longer pleasant. Don't call me Mara anymore. She says, call me Bitter. And who does she blame? She says, because I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Who ran away from God? And whose fault is it? What kind of a world do we live in? I mean, let's look at, and, and you know, you look at even those Metrolink trains. And as I've read those papers and as I've gone to some of those uh, memorial services, and have, have any of you read the faith testimonies that the papers have picked up about some of the people that had died in that crash, how God's sovereignty had, was with them, that he was with them, and that they had lived their lives well. Mr. Long over at Oaks, and you know, as you go in, his wife is up on that platform, and she is singing, Blessed be the name of the Lord as the funeral service begins. Said, Blessed be the Lord who's in charge of all things. But the world, what was the world's response? Within a few hours of that train accident, we had somebody to blame. 
We had somebody to blame. What do we do in our world? What's our perspective? Find somebody who's responsible, make sense of it, blame somebody else, not me. I shouldn't have to take responsibility. She comes back and says, it's the Lord's fault. The Lord has chosen to afflict me. And I find that that matches faulty perspective. I certainly relate to it because one of the ways that I answered and and went through my faith struggles with the Lord was to build up offenses against him. Look what you did. Look at my life, Lord. You certainly can't be for me. That can't be true. It may be true for everybody else, but Lord, it wasn't true for me. Faulty perspective. The world, what the world says, somebody's got to be to blame. It's got to make sense. Naomi's thinking becomes skewed. One of our biggest obstacles to right thinking is our own selves. Our own selves. We get in the way so much. Let's look at what Naomi did. She misreads the facts. Doesn't she? Takes no responsibility for any of her parts. Her focus, who she focused on? Herself, me, 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 woe is me, I, 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 Lord has afflicted me. Ruth has no, Ruth's a young thing. She's got no son. She's got nothing. Not thinking it. Blames God for forsaking hope, forsaking her. She defines hope by what she can figure out. She gives herself a new name, bitterness versus pleasant. And in her heart, you see her heart becoming bitter. Let's look at Ruth's response. Who's her confidence in? God of Naomi. She's sticking next to Naomi. I'm going to serve your gods. I'm going to go. I'm going to be with your people. Her focus is not on herself. It's other focus. She's focused on being there for Ruth, and she's focused on the God that she has learned to love. It's confidence. She has confidence that God has not forsaken her and will provide a way. She defines her hope based on faith, not based on the circumstances, not based on her will, and not based on her confidence in knowing the end result. Her emptiness. You know, see, see, let's look at Naomi, who's now called herself Mara. Her focus is bitter. Her focus is on hating that emptiness within, whereas Ruth embraces that emptiness. You can't cling to God when you have something else in your hand. You can't cling to God when you're holding something else in your hands. God's word says, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We've got to recognize what are the things that keep us from holding on. What are we holding in our hands? What do we take with us? What do we carry? Our responsibility is have a biblical hope, not an entitled hope. Let's look at entitlement. Do you see entitlement interspersed and, and woven all the way through Mara's, Mara's response? Naomi? It's entitled. What am I entitled to? I'm entitled to God's mercy in my life. I'm entitled to all God has to offer. God has dealt bitterly with me. It's his fault. Ruth's is a, a faith, a hope that translates into a working faith. Whatever God wants me to do. You want me to go glean? I will. Whatever God leads me, I'm going to go do. We'll make it. We're going to be fine. One foot in front of the other. That's all I've got to figure out today. I'm just going to go with you, Naomi. And as we read through the rest of Ruth, it's every step. She just takes one step at a time. She doesn't have to have it figured out. Who could have figured out? Boaz was going to be her redeemer. Who'd have thunk? And yet she trusted that if she just put one foot in front of the other, Somehow they were going to be okay, against all odds. Faith is clinging to the character of God, regardless of the circumstances we face, even if or when the worst happens. I love John ten twenty seven to 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 28, it tells why. Because my Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says the most clear statement of divinity that he ever makes out of his mouth, for I and the Father are one. 
We have a God that says, nothing can take you out of my hand. I got you firmly in my grasp, and there is nothing that can rip those fingers down. I've got you covered. I've got you in my hand. And no matter what life circumstance says, no matter what happens, no matter what thing hits you, no matter what deliverance looks like to you, you need to trust me with that. Nothing can take you from here. And, and this is where you're supposed to be. This is the parachute. In the end, you have eternal life. I've already told you, in this world you will have trouble. But the very next statement, take heart, I've overcome the world. I love the Psalms, and I love God's word, because as you read through it, you see these rich patterns. If you read the Psalms, you see David pouring out, you know, why have you forsaken me? We see his heart genuine and authentic, crying and struggling. And I do not want to give any of you the impression that you are not to have a real conversation with God and that you are not allowed to pour out anger or confusion to him. He wants us to just pour it all out. But the pattern is when you have done that, write down who he is. What do you know to be true? Who is he? Because we can't cling to a God that we carry around with us. Little water bottle God fits in my purse. Take him around with him. Take him when I need a swig. Look at how we do that in our lives. So often, he's just a little guy that we put in our purse because it feels good to carry him around. But is he big enough to handle real life all the time? He is so huge. And I want each of you to have such a passion to be in God's word and, and know, just know how huge he is. We're going to talk about that a little bit later too. Um, but he's huge. He's big. And I want you to remember that. Pour your heart out to him. Be mad at him. Tell him how unjust your circumstance is. And then remember who he is and put yourself back in proper perspective. You're God and I'm the clay. I'm a broken pot and you're the only one that can put me back together. And I'm choosing to put it all back in you. I want to funny, tell you a funny story. Um, not this summer, but the summer before, my family and two other families went to Lake Powell. And... Um, we had eight children under the age of 13 and six adults. Don't do that if you're planning to take a vacation. If you need a vacation, that's not the way to go. It was a lot of work, um, but it was fun. And actually, Betsy was one of the families that I went with, and we had a really good time. Uh, but we had one night. One of the things that's kind of scary about Lake Powell is these storms come out of the blue. And there was a storm that I thought only happened on movies. There was a movie I saw probably when I was in high school called Cape Fear. And this storm, you know, is raging. And the wind and the rain, they're horizontal and vertical all at the same time. And I don't know how it can happen. And the lightning and the thunder and the wind. And so we're basically going to get some gas, okay? Because we left the place we had docked. We're on our way to go get gas. Everything's great. My husband and daughter go off to kind of try to find a place for us to dock for the next night. Because you got to Find a place where you can get solid anchoring. And so they go off, and we go to get our gas, and then we're going to hook up with them. Well, then a storm comes. And you see the storm. It's like this mushroom in the sky. And it literally, you're not in the storm. You're in the storm. It's that defined. The water's getting bumpy. And we're going to the gas station. And now the gas station, everybody's running out because they're saying, Dog, go out! You know, lightning next to a gas station, not a good thing. So they keep us out, and my daughter and I get on a jet ski in these huge waves because the storm is coming closer to us, and we're going to look for my, my husband and my daughter who are in a boat, which is a fun boat. It's a ski boat, but it's got an open bow that's low, so it doesn't do so great in waves. And so I'm a little panicking, and um, the boat is going to get gas and lightning and mushroom cloud, and, and we finally get hooked up, and we think, okay, whew, and we realize it's really late in the day. And we need to find a place to dock. And in all the excitement, we haven't found one. So we go to look. And some guys say, hey, there's over in that area, there are some good places to dock. So we listen to them. And we go. And we're driving around and can't find a really good place. We find a place that is suitable. So we dock this big. How many feet was that? You got the motor, the houseboat. It's a big houseboat. It was like 50 feet. It was a big houseboat. So we dock up in this one little cove, but there isn't enough places to put the anchors in the ground. So we have to tie two of the anchors, or one of the anchors, to this huge 
rock that is bigger than me. It's huge. And it's probably been there for thousands of years. And we get it all tied up. The boats are getting hooked up. I'm getting the boat hooked up. I get on the back. And there's a nice little gentle breeze. Well, because we weren't solidly, solidly anchored, this gentle, not a wind, not even talking about a wind, a gentle breeze pushes this 50-foot houseboat, and that rock falls into the water. <laughs> and our houseboat now is going into the boats and the jet skis that we've brought along for fun, and we're all in a panic, okay? So I jump in a boat, my husband jumps in the other boat, our friend jumps in the jet ski, and poor Betsy's there to take care of all eight kids, <laughs> Get your life vest, that's right, just get the life vest on the kids. And we're in a panic because we have parked in a little bit of a cove and the boat's coming against, we have very little time or the boats are going to be damaged and the jet ski's going to be damaged and the jet ski was rented because then we'd be financially liable for it and we're all freaking out and we still have no place to dock because we've been looking and now it's really dusky. How many of you in here have been to Powell? To Lake Powell? Okay. Um... It's dark at night. <laughs> There's a difference between when the sun goes down and the moon gets high enough that they have any light. So when it's dark in between that time, it's pitch black. So we're driving around. My friend Karen goes up, and she sees this area with bushes, and she comes back, and she says, I found a place with bushes. We should just pull up on there and just run over the bushes. And this guy comes up to her, and... Um, we call them the angels, but they were listening to really hard music, and he had lots of tattoos. So I've never seen an angel in tattoos, but I did that day. And he says, no, you can't park here. There are brown recluse spiders that love those bushes. And he goes, last year we parked there, and we had to have my son airlifted out. And so I said, okay, well, we're not parking there. So we get ready to go out, and he goes, you know what? I have a rock router. Rock router. Who carries one of those around? I can anchor you in the rock. So we're like, oh, that's kind of cool. All right, let's go get anchored in the rock. You can see lots of spiritual connotations coming on here. So we get ready to go. We're moving this houseboat through. And the problem is, in moving the houseboat through, you know, in Lake Powell, it can be really, really deep, and it can be really, really shallow. And you just never know necessarily what you're going to hit because it's canyons underwater. So we're moving through. My husband jumps off the boat to go help get us anchored in the rock. And I'm out on this boat now that has no lights. And her boat is next to me. And my job is to make sure nothing happens to her boat. I'm driving another boat. So I'm circling it round and around and just sort of praying as I'm circling it. My friends go off. Everybody's on the houseboat. I'm in the pitch black. There is bats around and I'm sitting there, and I'm having this conversation with God. And I said, oh, God, the only thing that can happen that would make this worse, because we're all panicking, is that it could rain. Guess what? <laughs> Starts to rain. And I just started laughing. I started laughing. Because I felt God speak directly to my heart. And he said, even if, does that remove you from my hand? Even in the worst-case scenario... Nothing takes you from my hand. And so we just left, and I was like, all right. The boats did go up on the rock, both of them. But nothing got, nobody got hurt. We got banked and, and anchored in the rock. The very next night, a storm like I have never seen came. And even though we had to have our engines on full speed into the rocks to keep our anchor steady... We were safe. Had we been in the other place, it would have been so horrible because this storm, I've never seen a storm like it. But because we were anchored in the rock, we had work to do still. We had to tie things up and make sure we were doing our part. But God kept us safe. He got us anchored in firm, solid ground. Nothing got us out of his hand. His hand was upon us even when what we considered the worst was coming. And so... I think we need to remember that. Do we have an even-if God? Is there circumstances in our lives that remove us from his hands? If there is, then we've gotten off in our ability and our perspective. Our perspective has gotten skewed, and we need to work to get it back. In this world, we will have trouble. God doesn't pull one over on us. 
It's all throughout scripture. In this world, you will have trouble. This world is not our home. He's already overcome it. His death on the cross was him overcoming this world and death, which holds us. Nothing can snatch us back. God speaks of armor throughout Scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the full armor, put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In this word, the word for this in the New Testament Greek is elpis. That's the New Testament word for hope. It means joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. Our picture is eternal salvation. Our picture is not joy in this world, but it is of an eternity. We're not supposed to feel comfortable here, and I don't think we ever will. We go to Paul when he writes in Ephesians, the armor of God. I love the armor of God because it is so good at preparing us for weathering these storms. He, in it, he says, we are going to face storms. And you know what? The storms that we're going to face are not of flesh and blood. These battles are intense battles. They're spiritual battles that come from inside of us and outside of us and in our mind and all around. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the armor of God. The armor of God is in 6, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, 18, and I'm going to go ahead and read it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. The armor that Paul refers to is Roman armor. And actually, the Roman armor was um, a lot more elegant. And it was also a lot more useful. Roman soldiers were very well equipped for battle. And I don't believe it's an accident that Paul chose to use the armor of the Roman soldier. I want to talk to you a little bit about each piece. Belt of truth. What does that mean? Okay. We're going to find perspective focus here over and over. Belt of truth. Only God's truth can defeat Satan's lies. A belt holds things together. All the weapons in the armor were girded in that belt, were held in that belt. They had things that went on the right side and things that went on the left side. But that belt held everything together, just like truth spoken in our lives holds things together. You know, I often say in practice that we can deal with truth. It's those things that we don't know that become harder. Don't you feel like, you know, if you're, if you're waiting for a diagnosis or if um, there's something unknown, like waiting to see if you got into college or your son or daughter got into college and all those things, it's that waiting and that not knowing. But no matter what the truth is, we seem to have the strength to be able to deal with truth. It's that non-truth and those lies. How many of you find that when you just can't figure out the truth, it's that ambiguity and those things in our family where you just can't quite figure out what the truth is that becomes so defeating to us? Any of you have that experience? That belt of truth holds us all together. Breastplate of our righteousness, of righteousness. That's not our righteousness, but it's Christ's to protect us against the schemes of Satan. Understand this armor is there to protect us. And there's a part of it that we must do. We must put it on, and we must do the best that we can to understand it and understand our part. But this is to enable God to protect us. It's to build a faith in us that will be unshakable. Shoes of the gospel. To proclaim peace to all who want to hear. It's a really cool thing about shoes. I want to share with you the story of that prodigal son. How many of you know the story of the prodigal son? You know, this little bratty Jewish boy who goes to his dad and says, hey, I'm not going to wait till you die. I want to go out and 
have life and live life and have fun now. And he says, okay. Now, do you guys know how uncommon that would be in this day and age? At this time, for a father to just give him his inheritance early? But he does. He lets him go. And isn't that like God the Father? When I'm rebellious, God says, go. Let me know how that works for you. And I'll be back. I'll be right here. He does that. So the prodigal goes off. He's reduced to, I don't think it's an accident that he's reduced to feeding pigs because that's the lowest place you could possibly be as a, as a Jewish person. And when he comes back, the father's so excited to see him. He says, go get my robe, which is a sign of, of authority and it's, it's elegance. And give, me a, give him a ring, which is a sign that he has given back the power to speak for his father. A ring that he can seal documents with. The ring is a sign that he can speak. Shoes. Only children got shoes. The way they determined the difference between a slave and a child was by shoes on the feet. Differentiated the servants from the children. Another cool little thing, it's off topic, but even the killing of the fatted calf is so, so telling for all of us. See, they didn't have a refrigerator, so... If they killed more than they could eat, it went to waste. And they weren't a wasteful population. The killing of the fatted calf was for a huge party. When you invited the whole village, this was a big deal. And that calf would be sacrificed on the doorway so that every guest had to walk over that blood. And that blood represented a sign of total forgiveness and acceptance for the son. And that represents like Christ's death, that blood that we cross over, his total and complete acceptance of us regardless of our rebellion and how far away we've gone. But those shoes that proclaim that gospel, who God is. A couple weeks ago, our, our pastor did this sermon, our new pastor uh, did this sermon on the name of God, and he did the most profound thing. It, it just... Still to this day, when I think of it, it gives me chills. But it was about the name of God. And that through the name of God, every knee will bow. And every tongue will profess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he went down this list. And he said, one day Osama bin Laden will bend his knee and claim that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day every atheist. And he went down this list of everybody not one of us will not do that. God's word says at the very name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And our job is to do it on this side. We want to do it and we want to go out there and proclaim the gospel to as many people as we can so that they'll be on this side of it too. Shield of faith guards our perspective and allows us to see God's perspective. Different types of shields uh, were carried by the Roman soldiers. There was the one that guarded the whole body, like I was talking for, where you had a, a, a shield bearer, and the shield bearer would just kind of go in front of you. But then there was the other shield that was a little bit more rounded, and the way it was built was with leather, and, and it was very thick, and then it had bronze around it and metal around it. But they were done so that when you were walking in battle, all the soldiers could put it up like this, and the flaming arrows couldn't get through to the whole army because when all the shields were up, they would block against the flaming arrows. And that's what Paul is referring to. Look at what, is that, what does that say? Are we supposed to go into battle alone? We're in battle together. Every one of us. I don't care what church you go to. As believers, we are the church. Not bound by walls. And that our job is to walk together and encourage one another. To walk with our shields of faith. To encourage the guy next to you. There are times in our lives when our faith is going to be trembling. But you know what? That's why sisters and believers are there to encourage us along. It's why we get together as church. Because every gift counts and every gift matters. And there will be days when somebody may have a word that you would have been like, only you could have given me that word today. And that's exactly what I needed. How many of you have had that happen? God provides us with the word. Deflecting the, the, the flaming arrows. Helmet of salvation. I love the helmet of salvation. To me, that's one of the most important parts. Helmet of salvation in the Roman War. Only the leaders of the army actually got the metal helmets. And when you look at helmet, it's not salvation. It's not for somebody who's not saved. This armor is for a believer. 
This is not only to protect from those thoughts and the oppressions and that fear and that doubt. It's also to keep in our perspective of God. To guard and protect our minds from things that come in constantly to get us sidetracked. I mean, let's just turn on the TV. How many shows support biblical worldview? Can we even watch TV and feel like we are supporting and honoring God and we're giving ourselves something we don't have to fight against? It's hard. But it's just as important to keep all those things out as it is to keep the good in and to protect our faith. Something we need to hold tight to and to protect. Protection from our mind from lies. And that helmet of salvation is closely tied to the word of God. Do you see that link? Protecting our mind, protecting our perspective, and how important that sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is closely intertwined with that piece of armor. The word of God is so important as we walk through the battle of life. And, and I don't care who you are, life's going to be a battle. So all of the pieces of armor are essential for our protection. Some are used alone, and others are used alongside another in battle. I want to give you a, basically three things that we need to absolutely have and work on. Okay, the first of it is make a conscious decision to walk in faith. Our decision to walk in faith won't happen on accident. In fact, if we do it accidentally, where are we going to end up? How many of you have tried that? I typically end up in the ditch somewhere kind of looking like Mara or Naomi, a little bit bitter. You know, I run off, forget. The decision for faith has to be conscious. We have to decide to put on the armor. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We are destroying speculations and every th lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Our job is to constantly be evaluating our mind, our mind has the ability to confuse. It just does. You know, that faulty thinking, remember, it begins and ends with me. Faulty perspective starts here. It's not anybody else's fault. I can't blame it on the enemy. I can't blame that on Satan. I've got to look at where I'm allowing it inside. And a way that we do that is taking our thoughts captive and making them obedient to Christ. Do they line up with who God said he, says he is? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, so we walk by faith and not by sight. World perspective versus a big uh, biblical perspective. What the world says and what God says, do they match up? We need to train our minds to be asking that question. Am I following what the world says here? Do I need to make sense of my circumstance? Or am I trusting that even though none of this makes sense, somewhere down the road I'm going to turn around and go, oh, God, that was a good one. Uh-huh. I like it. At least it can be used. We have to train our minds. It won't happen on accident. What do you think our natural bent and our humanness is? Which perspective do you think we'll fall into? The world's. We're inundated with it. Look at my little girls. Six weeks in a row. Don't even believe that a believer has anything to do with believing. It's all what we do. The world beats down on us, says we have something to offer, says we have something to contribute. What we have to give God is our reach and our faith. Over and over, God's word says that. Give me your reach, give me your faith, and obey me. That's what I'm asking of you. Big picture focus. I love how God consistently... Any of you ever studied Daniel? Oh, Daniel is so beautiful to me. You know, you see him... That, that ninth chapter, Daniel's prayer, as he is just praying. Now, this guy, you know, look at Daniel. His life's pretty good. Went to the lion's den. He's changed Nebuchadnezzar. He's been a prophet. He stood on apologetically. And yet his prayer begins with, God, forgive us. We have sinned against you. He's no better than the rest of his nation. We are no better than anybody next to us. I'd love to say we are, but in God's eyes, we're exactly the same. We're a part of this nation, particularly as we move into these elections, we all have responsibility. We all have responsibility. And so, make sure, and you know, okay, so we go to Daniel, sorry. We go to Daniel, and he keeps going. God will give him, here's what's going to happen. This is going to happen. And Daniel's response is to cry. He's telling him prophecy about what's to come and how Rome is going to come. 
before that Greece, and before that um, Babylon. He's given us all these things. Babylon's going to fall. And he's prophesying what's going to happen and what's going to happen to the people of Israel. And Daniel is broken and grieving. And every time God sees him broken and grieving, he says, no, I got it covered. And look at how he does it through his word all the way through. Don't worry about it. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome it. Over and over, he keeps giving us, here's the reality. And guess what? On this side of heaven, reality sucks. It does. We're in a fallen world. But take heart, I've got it covered. I win in the end. You know the score at the end of the game. Trust it. Keep that big picture focus. Sometimes I do silly things just because I'm silly. But, and, and I'll be thinking, I'll, something will be getting down, and I'll just say, I know who wins in the end. It's got to be okay. I know who wins in the end. Truth is, all of us are going to be up there in heaven. We're going to be dancing, and we are going to have such a good time worshiping God by the sharing of our testimonies to one another of how he worked in our lives. You and I will spend eternity together. I'll get to meet loved ones that have gone before you in your faith. And it's going to be so fun to hear these stories. I mean, can you even imagine as you study heaven what God has prepared for those who love him? It's unfathomable. We can't get so caught up in this world and in this reality because God says it's not going to be so great. It's why we need to be in that word. And it's why we need to have a heart of gratitude versus a heart of entitlement. World says what we're ready for, what we're entitled to. God says my grace is sufficient. My salvation is sufficient. What I've done for you for the end of time and eternal life and getting to meet with all those loved ones that you've lost before that have gone before you. I want you to focus on the big picture at the end. I've made a way for you to live forever with me. Big picture focus. Our job's obedience. Our job is absolute obedience. Now let's see here. First step is always the hardest. Let's look at everybody who had to take those first steps, like Abraham. You know, come. Did Abraham in his lifetime ever get to see the completion of the promise? Noah, first step was the hardest, build an ark. Okay. <laughs> it's never rained. I don't even know what an ark is. But okay, I'll do it. That first step is often the hardest. Again, Hazel, when you came up here, going back when I didn't, it didn't make sense. It's the hardest. You said, first thing you said was, I'm not falling back. I don't care what you say, I'm not falling back. Now, you were easy to convince. Hebrews 10, 35 to 39. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a little while, he who is coming will come and will delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. In Colossians 3, 2, set your mind, set your mind on the things above, not on things that are of this earth. This is an active role we take in setting our mind where it needs to be. The world will keep it away from where it needs to be for us to walk a successful faith life. We need to do it purposefully. So, four things we need to know for the type of faith that protects our minds. Num, number one, know your God. Is God able to leave your life, lead your life? Is he able? Is the God in your mind big enough to manage your life? Do you believe that you will slip through his fingers? Or do you believe what his word says? Is he able? Know your God. Psalm 46.10. Oh, I love the NASB version. It's cease striving and know that I am God. Cease striving and know. No. Set your mind. Set it on things of me, not on things of this world. Cease striving. Stop working so hard. Just know that I am God. Whenever you question God's power, I have a great place for you to go. It's Job. <laughs> 
38 and 39, where he is answering Job. And I just love, this is probably one of my favorite parts. I used to hate, people used to call me Job because of my life. I, used to, I got a Job award one time, and I was so mad. Because, <laughs> you know, I just kept saying, it's over. My life's not going to be hard anymore. Stop calling me Job. Any of you ever get offended by that? I don't want to be Job. Um, I didn't mark it, so hold on. Just look through. I'm not going to read them, but even just the few minutes, the, the few minutes you set, Job 38 and 39. Lord answers Job out of the whirlwind and says, "Who is it? This that darkens counsel by words with knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth?" Tell me if you have understanding. Who sets, his measurements? who sets its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? And, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth it went out from the womb, when I made a cloud its gar- garment and thick darkness its swaddling hand, going to twelve, have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Who has a cleft, has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt? Do you know the time the mountain goats gives, give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Who set the wild donkey free? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his winds toward the south? And if you can go on through these scriptures, it is such a putting me in my place perspective. Sometimes we can get so big in our own minds. Figure we've got an answer for God. I I grew. I suffered from that affliction. Who are you, God? Why did you afflict me? Job clearly suffered from that affliction. Listed up all my offenses against you, and he says, who are you? Where were you when I started it all? Keep your proper perspective. I am God. You are my clay. I have saved you from this world and from death, which you deserve because you've sinned against me. But because I love you, I've made a way. And my son died because I wanted it. And he wanted it. And he loved you that much. Number two, know who you are in Christ. Faith releases our self-power and opens up God's power. It releases our self-power and opens up God's power. Reality of our condition is important. We need to recognize who we are. I had a little girl come in. She had an eating disorder. And um, she says, I'm a loser. And I said, well, get Webster. Let's see. So we read through Webster. And Webster says, anybody who's blown it one time is a loser. Well, guess what? She goes, oh, I am a loser. I said, yeah. I said, guess what? Who else is? She goes, you are too. I said, uh-huh. We're all losers. We've blown it. How many of you have not blown it yet? <laughs> guess what? By Webster's definition, you're losers. And I say, embrace it. <laughs> We're good. It keeps us in proper perspective. As long as I'm a loser, I need a savior. When I stop being a loser, I don't need him anymore. The reality of my condition and my need for a Savior never changes whether my mind changes itself or not. But I will keep in perfect peace his, his, him whose mind and steadfast. The more I can keep in proper relationship with God and recognize my need for him, the more easy it is for me to trust him and the more I need a Savior and the more I will be grateful to him for everything he gives me. I'm not talking about beating yourself up and going to the kick and post. That's not healthy. And actually, that's a little arrogant and prideful too. But we don't need to go there. Keeping that entitlement versus gratitude in perspective. And our job really is obedience. I love that Jeremiah 1.6. You know, as Jeremiah is coming to the Lord and he is saying, Lord, I'm too young. I can't do what you're asking me to do. And God says, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, your job is to obey me. My job's everything else. All you got to do is work on obeying me. You just do what I say. I'm supposed to take care of everything else. I'm your deliverer. I will protect you. I will guard your reputation. God's in charge of everything else. 
He wants our obedience. God's word even says, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Number three, know your enemy. My daughter and I were reading the screw tape letters. In the very first chapter, something struck me, and it says, it would be wise to remember that Satan is a liar, that the devil is a liar. And I thought, that is so simple, and I know that. But how often in the way that I live my life do I just forget it? He's walking around wanting to, to distract us, wanting to twist Scripture he knows scripture. He wants to confuse you. First Peter 5, 8, be, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Understand our enemy. There was a special on child predators that I watched one time, and they took some parents that felt extremely confident that if a predator, a child predator, came up to their children, they would have the skills to avoid it. Guess what happened? Every kid went. Not one of the children used any of the skills that they were taught to avoid a predator. Everyone went with the predator. Doesn't matter what the techniques the parents had used, and I don't want to freak all you out, but they did a study, and they asked them to come back in the room, and they said, draw a stranger. Everybody drew monsters. Everybody drew monsters. How often do we do that? The bad guy's going to look bad. Ted Bundy, he was kind of cute. How did Christ come to the world? Isaiah 53 tells us. He, has not, he had no stately form or majesty that we should, we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. And it goes on to say, like one from whom men hide their face. You know how Satan came to this world? Worth? Satan's ways are logical and sometimes attractive. Ezekiel 28, 12 to 13. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. The world wants us to believe Something that looks so attractive. Even in God's form, as he came to this earth as a human being, he did not come attractive, that me might be attracted to him because of his looks. And yet Satan's pretty cute. He's a looker. We even see that in Saul and David, the choice of Saul. Saul was a head taller. He was handsome, strapping young man, stood a head taller than anybody else in all of Israel. He looked like a king should look. And David didn't. He was a handsome, ruddy kind of guy, but he's a shepherd, little guy. God's ways don't make sense, and they're not always the most attractive choices. Does that mean that we should run, not walk away from anything that looks good? No, I'm not telling you. I'm just saying be discerning. Know that when it looks good, it doesn't necessarily mean it's true, and we need to be aware of who our enemy is and who God is, and in order to do this, Fourth no is we need to know the word of God. Deuteronomy, when it talks to us about remembering when we walk and when we sit down, he's reminding us, guess what? We're forgetful. Twelve-step programs are based on the thing that we're forgetful. We're not inundated. It's why we get together as a body of believers. Left to our own devices, we're all not going to, we're going to run amok. Hopefully not, but... um, Matthew Henry, a commentator, says, To the Christian armed for defense in battle, the apostle recommends only one weapon of attack, but it is enough, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It subdues and mortifies evil desires and thoughts as they rise within and answers unbelief and error as they assault from without. A single text, well understood and rightly applied, at once destroys a temptation or an objection and subdues the most formidable adversary. Again, remember, Satan knows God's word. And he wants to manipulate it in our minds. If we're not in the word of God, and we don't know the character of God, how are we going to be able to say, oh wait, that doesn't match the character of God, and if it doesn't match the character of God, then I need to figure it out. When Paul was going out on his ministry, he came to the Bereans, 
And when the Bereans heard him, they went back home and they researched scripture to see if he, what he was saying was right. And he extolled them. That was the right way to be. We need to go and we need to make sure that what we're hearing is accurate. Just because I'm up here because somebody thought I could come and teach the word of God doesn't mean that I might not lead you astray. I'm a human being. I might understand something wrong. We go back to God's word and check out anything. And when we're in God's word and we know the character of God from his, from his word, when we hear something that doesn't match up with it, we're going to say, ooh, that doesn't match the character of God as I know it. And so maybe I can go find a friend that I can discuss this with. Or I need to go back to God's word and see, is this possible or is this a lie? Be vigilant. I love Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must, to whom we must give account. God has us covered. He knows us from the inside out, and his word is able to separate the good from the bad. That time that we spend in his word with him will educate us on who we are. It'll educate us on who he is. It'll educate us on what we need to be wary of with the devil. And it keeps us safe. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. I love this. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me. We're going to go to lunch in a minute and I want you to think of this. Your words for me became a joy and a delight in my heart. For I have been called by your name, O God of hosts. In Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, words as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times, seven times that number of perfection and power. We will not know twisted scripture unless we know scripture. And then we go back to, okay, so the four things we needed to know to keep our faith. And then a couple other things that we need to do. Be committed to prayer. Psalm 5015, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you shall honor me. Ephesians 618, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf. Job 42.10, this is pretty cool. I just, when I was doing this, hit a word. 42.10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. Look at how important that prayer is when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Proverbs 5.19, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. And the last thing that we can do is be committed to one another in Christ. All throughout scripture, we need one another. The word encourage, when God's word uses be encouragers of one another all the more as the day approaches. Encourage is from a root word. N is to give courage. You know, there are days in our walk when our faith is shattered and we may fall to our knees. And it is a job of our dear friends in Christ to lift us up and say, yeah, this walk is hard. I get it. But let's walk. And I'll walk with you for a while. And every person in the body of Christ is essential. We are bound together with that big picture. We're going to be in a big party in the end. It's going to be fo so fun to celebrate with you all, God, with all you guys. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we have a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with the endurance the race set before us, fixing on eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. God refers to us as his witnesses. We're really important to him. In that verse, we are his joy. The salvation of the body and those that he was saving were his joy. That's where his eyes were fixed. As we grow our faith, we need to understand our faith is a process. The growth of our faith is a process. It's a process that we contribute to. We don't become a believer and then have this idea that we're supposed to be a good Christian now. We've got to give room to one another to go through the process of building our faith and encouraging one another as we walk a hard life, not pretending it's a great life, not pretending it's, we got it all down. Some of us have struggles in marriage. Some of us have health struggles. 
I read another commentary. It said, Christians are not allowed to hide. They're supposed to live. They're not supposed to have secrets. They're supposed to live transparently because it is through our transparency that God shows more gloriously through us and that we are ministering to other people around. Every trial is truly an opportunity to glorify God. And every day, we get to choose which walk we're going to take. Are we going to walk with what we're entitled to? Are we going to walk in fear and doubt, victimization, anger? Only one way promises deliverance, and that's through faith. And I want to close us in prayer before we go to lunch. Father God, I just thank you so much for your words. I thank you, Lord, as I just look at your scripture and how throughout you give us such solid messages of your hand upon our lives. And you are so tender, Lord, to give us your assurance over and over again, that touch of don't be afraid, I've got it covered all the way through your word, Father God. Help us to know how to walk victoriously and free from the hold this world has on us. Father God, help us walk as children of you, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ and his ability to perfect our faith. Lord, knowing that it is not something that we have the ability to do. Only you, God, can grow our faith. Our job is obedience and submission consistently of our will over to you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you will work mightily in these ladies. I pray that you will bless this food to the nourishment of their bodies and that they will come back just ready to tie up this day with you and leave here refreshed and renewed, Father God, to walk with you. In your precious name, amen.